Uh, open up your guys' Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. It is where we're going to be this morning, Matthew chapter 2. You guys thought we were going to come and do a little Christmas sermon without having to open up our Bibles. Wrong. Matthew chapter 2. All right. So, how's your guys' Christmas season going? You guys having a good time? How's this Christmas tree over here? Wow, whoever put that together, we love you guys. Yeah, we wanted to be very Christmassy for you guys this morning. Hey, if I were to ask you guys, what are some of the, like, important, the most important things for you guys in the Christmas season? What would those be? Like your Christmas season couldn't happen without these things. I'm going to give you like 10 seconds to tell your neighbor what you think the important things about the Christmas season are. Go. What are they? Oh, just talk. Have fun. We're family. Important parts of the Christmas season. We enjoy it. Don't be bashful. All right, all right. Yeah, that's about 10 seconds. Good job. Okay, bring it back. Bring it back. Uh, I did youth ministry long enough to realize that that could go wrong really quickly, but you guys are adults, so let's bring it back. All right. Um, all right, so I'm hoping, did anybody say Christmas tree? Christmas tree? No, Christmas tree? All right, well, I thought the Christmas tree was a big one. Uh, where are my real tree people at today? Real tree. You need a real tree. Yes. Where's my I don't cares, I love my fake tree? Yo, you guys, we love you guys. There's room for you here. All right, no, we're good. Um, lights, Christmas lights. Anybody think Christmas lights are important? Yes, very important, right? Who had their Christmas lights up before Thanksgiving? My special people. Good job. All right. Yes. Um, of course, Christmas music. If you guys haven't found Christmas trap music yet, I want to encourage you to go look it up. It's actually amazing. Um, I love it. Anyways, um, Christmas movies are like favorite pastime for most people. I'm hoping. If not, well, that's on you. Um, so there was a, a, a national poll given uh, for the most popular Christmas movies. I wonder if yours made it. Uh, so it, in first place, which is the best Christmas movie, Shocker, Home Alone, number one. Uh, tied for second place, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? And It's a Wonderful Life for the, you know, OGs, we like you. Um, third, and this one we're all going to like, Elf, yes, right? And A Christmas Story, good job. Now, if you're super manly and yours is Die Hard, you came in six. You came in six. Good job. You guys are, I'm actually, I was very shocked to see that. Good job. So now, uh, okay, there we go. He's ready. You're next. Okay. Um, I'm hoping that some of you guys, most of you guys probably saw this as kind of like a, like a pull for to say Jesus, right? I'm sort of like the first thing you said. We're in church. He wants us to say Jesus. Um, what if I told you that a word that I'm hoping that somebody said, but a lot of times we maybe forget is worship worship, right? Here's the thing, all holidays and Christmas are actually about worship, right? For millennia, humanity has celebrated traditional and cultural holidays, right? And more times than not, these uh, holidays are, are kind of centered around the worship of a deity or a king or royalty, right? And so it was done in honor to these things. And so holiday, I mean, sorry, holidays are also known as holy days. Now, that is where we get the word, holiday. And it's been a trademark of humanity as we are spiritual people created in the image of a God who is spirit. See, for the, for, for the majority of human history, we've acknowledged the spiritual realm. We've understood that there's more to life than what we can see, taste, touch, right? The, that more than what can be measured and observed, right? A deep 
part of humanity that just can't be explained by science and it's understood in the deeper part of who we are. And so for the last couple, few hundred years, people have tried to kind of sear and, and, and dull our spiritual senses, overwhelmed by Stoicism and the Enlightenment, where man has tried to remove God as ruler and creator and then put himself in place of God. And so here's the thing, though a lot of the West, Western world, and maybe even some of us in here have numbed themselves to the things of God and spirituality, we still celebrate these holy days. We just dress them up in costumes and props to keep our souls from having to deal with the deeper reality that there is a God who came down, became a man, born in a manger to save the world. During Halloween, Easter, Christmas, right, people are still worshiping something because we were created to worship. It's just part of the way that we were designed. But it's not just on these holidays that we see this kind of worship, but in our everyday lives. See, we see this play out in, in where we give our affection, how we spend our resources, invest our time, what we fight for, what we sacrifice for. Right? As if someone were to look at your life, they could see what you worship. And so Christmas is all about worship. It's a reordering of our worship. It's about kings and those who resist God's loving rule and reign and those who bow the knee to the one true king. And so today we will see a very familiar Christmas story that has the potential to unearth some of the answers to our soul's kind of greatest wrestlings, right, to dethrone the illegitimate kings of our lives and to realign us around the worship of the one who is worthy. So if you guys want to look down with me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, and we'll jump into it, I hope. If you don't have a Bible, every single phone hopefully has the capability to download the Bible app. I always encourage you guys to grab that. If you don't have either, it's up on the screen. Here it goes. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He said to them, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your good and loving care for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth that this morning we get to hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would realign our hearts back to you. Or that your word would do its transformative work and that your Holy Spirit would bring to life once again the worship we were created for. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we know this story well, right? We three kings, right? It's a very famous Christmas carol. Um, I don't know if you guys ever really thought about the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, um, but I, I would challenge you guys to go into this passage and see what these men are actually called. Do any of your Bibles actually call them kings? 
No, they're actually called wise men or magi, right? And so bottom line is that song is wrong. You can still sing it, you know, um, but it's, uh, it's wrong. Um, and then you also see a number, we three kings, right, of Orient are, right? So where is the three coming from? If you look back down in your Bibles again, Bible trivia, you will not find a number given to the Magi. Again, we kind of just like threw it in the song because three is the magic number, right? So they figured that out. Um, it's also not there. And so what we see in this passage is actually there is no number given. The only reason why we say three uh, is because there's three gifts. And so we just assume, but that's, that's incorrect. And one last thing to kind of just throw this out there before we jump too much into this. Um, anybody have a nativity scene with the three kings at it? Who's got my nativity scenes? Three kings. Yeah, remember they're the magi, so you just, you lost. I'm kidding. Um, so what history tells us and even the story shows is that the magi actually came at a different time than the shepherds. So our cute little nativity scenes with everybody kind of perched around the manger, um, a little incorrect, but that's okay. Um, it's cool is uh, actually in Argentina, well, go Argentina, they have a, uh, a holiday called the Three Kings Day. Okay. And, uh, and so it's cool is that a few weeks later after Christmas, little Argentinian boys and girls, they put their shoes out. I got to celebrate this as a kid. It was really fun. Put their shoes out and they put little trimmings from their tree for the camels and the Three Kings would come by and put a present in it. Yes, I know, double present. So we loved it growing up. Um, and so, as you can see, so again, they came at a different time. Some scholars say that they came up to two years after the birth of Jesus. Some say it could have been just a few months, um, somewhere in there. And so these magi from the east, right, so they were, they were the scholars of the stars, right, probably from Persia, Babylon. Um, they were astronomers and astrologers, right? And so those are separated today, but back in the ancient world, they were kind of the same um, they did all of it, right? And so they had the skill of kind of deciphering the stars, the laws of the, of the stars and the messages. And so they were considered wise men. Uh, there's a Bible called the Jesus Book, which is a Hawaiian pigeon Bible. You should check it out. It's really fun. Um, and they call it the smart guys who know plenty about the stars. I love it. Yeah, I know. I was like, yes. Um, right? They would, but see, these guys, they would be placed in the royal courts, right, advising kings and rulers. They were respected and highly regarded so much so that they would sometimes even crown kings, right? And then, then they would educate those kings in knowledge and wisdom. This is where we see Daniel, if you remember the book of Daniel, where he was put at the head of all the wise men in Babylon. Right, so he, would, he was overseeing the magi of Babylon when he was there because of his giftedness from God and his relationship with him. And so a lot of people believe that these wise men have come to understand about the Messiah and have learned about him through Daniel's influence in the kingdom of Babylon and then also the remnant of Jews who would be scattered who still had a messianic hope. And so we have these wise men of the king of the Jews, um, looking for the king of the Jews. They show up to Jerusalem and they actually end up meeting a king they didn't expect, right? And so our first point is this, is everyone wants to be king, but there is only one. And so the Magi, they show up. In verse 2, they say, where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, when Herod the king, awkward, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, 
you have to imagine this kind of huge entourage of royal foreigners, right? So again, we've always just imagined these like three kings, but these are royal officials of great nations who would have been traveling with a massive entourage. It can be anywhere from 30 to 40 to 200 um, people with guards and like a mini army rolling into Jerusalem. So it caused quite a stir. Um, and so if, you know, if you have your nativity set at home and your kids have a bunch of action figures, you can honestly put them behind and it'd be a little bit more accurate. Um, so the whole town is freaking out and the roads and the, and the inns are filled with this eastern caravan and news gets to King Herod, right, who's the supposed king of the Jews, right, and so I'm just imagining him in his court, right, with all of his court officials, right, and then these guys roll in saying, hey, we're looking for the real king of the Jews, right, and then it's like the court officials like, oh, awkward, like he's the king. And so, so how did Herod get his title as king? Well, interesting thing, King Herod wasn't even Jewish. Uh, he was Idiomean and was actually converted to Judaism, his family. Um, and so the Roman Empire actually had kind of set him up as their puppet king, um, and he was ruling over them. But he actually had no legitimate right to the title king of the Jews. He had no real claim to the throne. He was an illegitimate king. And so here's the thing. Herod was so desperate to maintain his questionable hold on this title king of the Jews that he did some pretty messed up things. Right, history tells us that he was so insecure of losing his throne that he had his wife's brother killed because he saw him as a threat. And then he went so far to actually then have his wife killed and then took a couple more steps and even had two of his sons killed in trying to protect his little kingdom from any threat to his control, position, and adoration as king. And so Herod's reaction to the arrival of the Magi looks kind of like this frantic damage control. He's calling together his chiefs and scribes saying, hey, okay, these guys are looking for the Messiah. Like, I don't know really what's going on. So like, they gave him kind of like Messianic Prophecy 101. Simple question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Right? And so it could look like he's just trying to find the Magi this answer. But we know that he's actually preemptively trying to, to, to squash any potential threat to his own power even if that meant killing children. Later on in chapter 2, we find out that he kills all the children in Bethlehem under the age of 2 in order to see this Messiah taken care of. Now, we look at Herod's internal struggle and insecurity and the lengths that he goes to protect his kingdom and his position, and we're pretty shocked. But what this passage is giving us is a reflection of any heart of any person who is obstinate to the reign of King Jesus in their life. See, the story of Christmas is a story of the one true king coming to claim his throne on the heart of his people, those created in his image, chosen before the foundation of the world. Right, we saw in the garden a couple weeks ago where humanity usurped the throne of God in their own lives, desiring to be the king and ruler of their lives. Lost in their sin and brokenness, they spiraled down where the Bible says that every person's heart was only thinking evil things continually. Right, everyone's heart was only thinking evil things continually. That's a lot of evil. This is how the Bible describes humanity apart from God. See, this is the picture that we see in Herod who was so desperate to maintain control and be the king, not of just his own life, but of others, right? Wanting to have control, not wanting his projected image to be threatened. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to maintain his kingdom and his title. See, inside every single one of us, it is a desire to rule and reign, be our own king, stay in control. Or we all can struggle with this. Right? And so and how, how, does that, how does that work out usually, right? What does that lead us to? Have you ever asked yourself, where does my insecurity come from? 
Or we all battle with some form of insecurity. Have you ever asked where it comes from? Or where do our fears come from? Where does my anxiety come from? See, Herod had a bunch of this. But where do ours come from? All right, so many of these questions can be answered by our desire to maintain control as king, ruler, and making sure nothing threatens our little kingdom that we've built for ourselves. The comfort, the convenience, and the control we work so hard to maintain. So I get to see this happen every day, play out in my home. I've got three boys. Um, two older ones, right? They have their own little kingdoms, right? We're trying to teach them how to live in Jesus' kingdom, but they're still in training, right? And so you have these two little kingdoms colliding every single day. I mean, it could be a full-on war. I mean, they'll make like, you know, they'll make a little peace treaty and they're happy and they're holding hands and playing and stuff, right? But then there's the betrayal, right? I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I feel like this is kind of what it is, like kid version, right? Like, let's be buds, right? And then like stab in the back because I want my Lego piece to build my Lego kingdom, right? My Lego kingdom is better than yours, right? And so that's kind of what's happening there. And, and it's funny. It's funny because a lot of the times, even for kids, like a lot of their, one of their first words is mine, like mine, mine, like I want this, like this belongs to me. Don't threaten my happiness. Don't threaten my kingdom. Me and my wife, we have a little newborn. Um, and if he's not getting his way, right, if he's not getting food when he wants it, sleep when he wants it, carried when he wants it, that little king is crying his head off, right? And we start young, right? But see, this, this matures as we get older, right? We start to build our kingdom, and it becomes a lot more complex and comprehensive. See, Herod's insecurity came from the fact that he was an illegitimate king, always in fear, like somehow he was going to be found out. So desperately trying to maintain this image so people would love, adore, and respect the king that he was propping himself up to be. And see, this is just a reflection of how so many people live their lives. And we build this kingdom of self. We try to prove to other people that we are worthy of their love and their adoration and respect by how, we, how well we build, maintain, and present our kingdom to others. And here's the thing, if anything threatened that, threatens that, we kind of go into kind of damage control, desperate, like doing whatever it takes to maintain control and the adoration and the respect of others. Now, don't get me wrong, it's okay to have respect, right? And having some control of your life is okay as responsible people, right? But what happens when we, when we don't do that underneath the gracious and loving rule of God, but act like God, be our own king, make life about maintaining our kingdom, life becomes very strenuous. Right? It's a difficult existence. Not too long ago, only the rich and the famous and the influential were able to kind of promote their kingdoms to the world to see. Right? And they would be worshipped right, and adored and respected through magazines and news articles and TV specials. The world would gather around these platforms and worship and adore these people and the kingdoms they built for themselves. But here's the thing. A new little thing has come into the world. It's called the smartphone. And it's called social media, where now every single person in the world has the capacity, the capability of showcasing their little kingdom. But with great power comes great responsibility. And now we're responsible to maintain this projected version of ourselves, this image, this kingdom, proving to the world, saying, look at what a good ruler I am of my own life. See, social media has turned into another different Game of Thrones where it's now a game, how many highlights can I put on my social media page to present my kingdom in a way that other people want to give allegiance by liking, following, loving, reposting. We get to curate how we want others to perceive our kingdom. Right, come to the Christmas season, 
right? And everyone's trying to show, like, look at how well I've ruled and reigned over my Christmas season. Like, look at my Christmas lights. Look how nice they are. Look how together my Christmas decorations are. Look how many invites I got to Christmas parties. How well my Christmas cards turned out two weeks early because I'm proactive and better than everyone else who doesn't have them yet, right? So there's these, these moments, right, showing up to parties, you know, when your Christmas swag, like my sweater's uglier than your sweater, whatever, however that works, right? Like everyone wants my white elephant gift because I spent $30 over the limit, right? And so we just like, hey, look at me. There's so many different ways that we try to build and project and present our kingdom. And here's the thing that breaks my heart is that, is that people can be so enslaved to this image of themselves online or in person. I heard of a young influencer who went into tens of thousand dollars of debt Right, so she could buy clothes and props and, and for her posts while struggling with depression, showing a version of herself that wasn't real, showing the world, look, look at me, look at my kingdom, adore me, let me feel worthy of people's adoration. Because here's the thing, if we don't realize that we're not God and we haven't had our heart reordered to actually know him, we, we end up turning ourselves into God. The natural sin bent wiring of my heart will try to make myself God, and I'll worship myself and then look to others to worship the projected version of me. But we make pretty horrible gods. We're going to let people down. We're going to let ourselves down. We need a better God. See, this kingdom stuff doesn't stop at social media. It works itself out every single day in our homes. Like I said earlier, my kids have their own little kingdoms. You and your spouse might have battling kingdoms when you forget that you're both in God's kingdom. Right, so many of our interpersonal conflicts with our spouses and coworkers, friends, roommates, whatever that looks like, is because somebody's kingdom is being threatened. Somebody's control or comfort is being threatened. The projected image of yourself is being threatened. And so we go into self-preservation mode and do whatever it takes to keep people seeing you as this great in control, I got it all together, King Herod that we're so desperately trying to be. The kingdom of self is a powerful force. And if we're not aware of that old self that still can rise up, that part of us that can rise up, even though we've given our lives to Jesus, even though we've laid down our crowns at his feet, the kingdom of self wants to rise up every day, usurp the throne back from God and set up our kingdom all over again. But aren't we tired? Aren't we tired of trying to maintain our little kingdom of self? Like we slay ourselves, we work ourselves to the bone trying to keep up with this kingdom of others or we forget that we've been saved, not only from the kingdom of darkness, but from the kingdom of self. Like we've been bought into this marvelous, peace-giving kingdom of the Son of God. And we realize that life's not about us. And that is a very freeing truth. Right? Jesus comes at Christmas to save us from sin and from ourselves, to free us from the tyranny of self. Our insecurity, our doubt, our worry, our stress, the comparison game. Right, we need to take our eyes off of others' kingdoms and put our eyes on the kingdom of God. Put our eyes on our great God who came for us to free us from the incessant need to prove ourselves as kings. We need to submit ourselves to Jesus' kingship. And so this affects everything. See, if I'm fighting for my kingdom, I can get pretty defensive when my wife kind of points something out or questions something that I do. I can forget to trust God. And instead of resting in the justification that he's given me, I'm constantly trying to justify myself, trying to fight for my little kingdom and forget, no, 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 I'm in his kingdom. It's not about me protecting my kingdom, but, but how can I live into his kingdom by the way that I, that I humble myself and love and serve and entrust him with the outcome? That's easier said than done. If you're married, you, you know that, but to live in God's kingdom affects everything. Everything. 
Right? Instead of trying to assert yourself every day at work, proving your ability to be king in control, you get to rest and surrender to God and remember that you're his representative. We're not desperately and securely working to maintain and improve our kingdom, but we're now in service to the true king, striving to represent him. Are we no longer worrying about how we're being received on the other end of a screen? Like, what do people think of me and my posts? Am I doing good enough to maintain my image? Right? Because it's, it's not about us. We can share our lives and our memories in a way that glorifies God. We can interact with people online in a way that reflects God. But we need to check our hearts and ask, am I serving myself, some, some image, some kingdom, and forgetting that everything I do, everything I post, everything I write is done under the glory of God and for his kingdom. See, there is rest to be found when we surrender having to be our own king. I know that there is a better and greater king who has come down for us at Christmas, died for our sins to make a way back to him. He comes into our lives. He guides and he directs us. He provides for us. It's no longer about us. We are no longer in charge. See, the omniscient and all-powerful God who knows everything going on in your life. Think about that. All the mess that you brought in this morning, he knows what's going on. But he knows where you're going to be in one year. He knows where you're going to be in five years. And he says, trust him. Live for him. He can take care of you. Like if we could just trust and surrender in him instead of fighting for this facade of control, there is a peace when he is our king. See, we are illegitimate kings, never meant to rule our own lives, but to surrender to a better king, right? The God that we were made to know and trust and worship. See, the pressure is completely off when we surrender to him as king, right? How, how do people perceive me? is no longer the question, but how do people perceive Jesus in me is now the question, right? I'm no longer consumed with my projected image of myself and my kingdom, but, but how well am I projecting the image of Christ in me and pointing people to his kingdom? See, when we live for King Jesus, all the insecurity and doubts and fears of having to prove ourselves to the world is swept away. Instead of having to prove ourselves as worthy and accepted and adored, we find all of that in Christ. Right, King Herod sacrificed his own family to maintain his kingdom. But King Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could come into his family and live in his kingdom. See, this is our good and gracious king who we come together and adore and worship and praise and adoration during the Christmas season. And we see this, this contrast between the Magi and Herod. Look down with me in verse 7. It says, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way and the star, which they had seen in the east, went before and stood over where the place the child was. When they saw the star, they rejo rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with his, Mary, with his mother Mary, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here's the thing is, is everybody worships something. And that something drives our life. Did anybody get up early this morning to watch the World Cup? Oh, where are we at? I'm not trying to shame you guys. It's totally cool. I watched a little bit. Yeah, World Cup. Yes, that was exciting. Yeah, see, we sacrifice for the things that are important to us, right? We sacrifice sleep to see Messi and Argentina get the World Cup. What? Um, right? We sacrifice things that, uh, that we care about that are important. See, this happens more than, you know, once every, you know, couple years with NFL. This happens all the time. Right? A lot of people will, especially in Hawaii, because the games are early in the morning in Hawaii, right? So we'll sacrifice sleep 
to get up and watch the football game. Sometimes we'll sacrifice church, um, you know, to, to do whatever, you know, whatever, to watch whatever. See, there is this level of worship ascribed to sports teams where I say, I think it's awesome to have your favorite team. Okay, go Raiders. But I think, I think some people take it to unhealthy levels. Um, you know who you are and just you need to calm down. That's, that's not the Lord. That's just me as a friend just letting you know, you know, take it down a notch. Um, and, and here's the thing. The reason why is as, as humans, we were created to worship. We're wired for worship. We can't help but find something to ascribe our worship to. So even during the Christmas season, we see it everywhere. Like I said earlier, it's a time of worship, right? We see everyone sit up their Christmas reindeer shrines in their yards, burning their holiday joy doTERRA incense in their Santa high places, right? We sacrifice on the altar of spending over their Christmas budget all over again, right? Christian or not, the world can't help but worship the Christmas season. See, there's a lot of low-level worship out there, right? Like sports, like we talked about. Others worship video games, right? Spending hours bowed down before the screen of their choice. Some worship surfing, spending hours in the baptismal pool of surf, right? Others are spending those Benjamins to keep up with that expensive hobby. You know who you are. And if you don't, if your wife just, oh, well, do you? That's you. Um... And again, there, there, are, there are healthy ways to enjoy these things, like healthy God-honoring ways, right? Because I can admit that I'm a part-time sports fan, okay? I'm a novice gamer, ask Kojo, okay? I'm an amateur surfer, ask anyone who's seen me surf. And if they've actually seen me, it's a rare sight, so kudos to them. Um, I enjoy all these things, but there are greater things that vie for our worship, right? And we could usually nail down what we worship by how we spend our lives, Right, the thing that gets us up in the morning, the, the first thoughts, right? Which for some of us is coffee. I get that, right? But there are other things that drive us. What we worship drives us. That thing that consumes our desires and our wants. If we look at Herod and the Magi, you can see what they chose to worship. Herod chose to worship himself. The Magi chose to worship Jesus. And as much as we want to say people worship their career and their education, their stuff, their comfort, all that stuff, right? There's an even deeper level of worshiping happening here, right? Because all of those things have one thing in common, themselves, right? It's their career, their possessions, their comfort, right? It might look like we're worshiping these things, but, but we're actually worshiping a happier, better version of ourselves, a more in-control version of ourselves, a richer version of ourselves, or higher up in the company version of ourselves, that, that the version of ourselves, the dream car, dream house, retirement, right, or the more right-winged politician version of yourself, the more intelligent and educated version of yourself. These are the things that we go after. But what do those things achieve in the end? See, the hard part is, is these aren't bad things. Right? They can be used in God's plan of redemption in the world. But it's in our pursuit of these things. Right? This, this deep level worshiping of these things, of this better future version of ourselves that results in the low level worship of a bunch of things that are less than God, leaving us wanting, feeding our sin and self-centeredness and pride. And then we wonder why our hearts are so discontent and unsatisfied. When we worship things other than God, it's ultimately an offense against our holy God who alone is worthy of worship. See, worshiping ourselves brings fragile, short-lived gratification that can be taken for us in a moment. But when we worship, what we worship is threatened, right? When it, that thing is taken away, 
right? It leads to most of our fears and our doubts and our worries. Like I said earlier, that we, we were created for worship, so we will find an outlet, right? But our hearts were made to worship God. G.K. Chesterton says, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships everything. See, when we try to find our purpose and worship of other th in other things, when our, our heart goes after other things, our life goes out of alignment. See, the hard part is, is this world is curating a perfectly analyzed algorithm to keep you wanting and worshiping some future ber version of yourself by feeding you and feeding you ads, commercials, influencers to tell you there's a better version of yourself out there. Go out and pursue it. Worship it. Spend your life towards those ends and somehow you're going to be fulfilled. Well, spoiler alert, you won't be. Because when you arrive there, your discontented and unsatisfied heart that was only supposed to find its purpose and fulfillment in worshiping God will need something else to worship. Because there will always be a better version of you. You will always be able to find someone else in your season of life who's doing better than you, who's smarter than you, who's in better shape than you, who's got nicer teeth than you, sorry, who's got a better car than you, a better legacy, fill in the blank. Right? Houses will rot away. Cars will have all the new models coming out next year. Career accolades will be forgotten. The little kingdom that you're building, yesterday's news. But the kingdom of God will reign forever. And the worship of God that is happening right now in heaven and all around the world will be happening for all of eternity. Will you join in with the worship of our God? Or will we be distracted by the little gods of this world, including ourselves, and worship something less than him, leaving us more discontent wrapped up in the sin of idolatry and self-seeking. See, it was in the pursuit of building his own kingdom that the illegitimate king Herod was consumed with self-worship and a better version of himself. But he was in this constant state of doubt and worry and insecurity, probably thinking, am I good enough? Am I approved enough? Am I worthy enough? As the object of his worship had to do with him and was finite and unfulfilling. Herod worshiped this idea of him being this king and he sacrificed babies and other things to maintain that his object of worship wasn't threatened. See, we will sacrifice for what we worship, what's ultimate in our lives. And this is the stark contrast that we see between Herod and the Magi. We see these esteemed royal upper class wise men from the east come with their entourage seeking out the prophesied Messiah of old who's been now been born into the world, the king worthy of honor, praise, and glory. They bring their most expensive and valuable gifts of that time, sacrificing their time to seek him, sacrificing their gold and frankincense and myrrh to the one true king who is worthy of worship and every gift that we bring him. See, we sacrifice for what's most important to us. And so as we call ourselves followers of God, worshipers of God, we have to ask ourselves this morning, like the Magi, have we truly kneeled before King Jesus and given him our all? our most expensive, valuable things? Or are we giving him our leftovers? Are we giving him one day a week? See, my heart was wrecked over this as I was preparing this week. And I, and I, I was like, Lord, where have I been giving my best gifts to other things? Where have I been giving my most valuable time, my thoughts, my affections, my emotions? Have I been worshiping something other than you? Because what we worship drives our lives. And I want Jesus to drive my life. And I could be so frustrated that my heart could so easily go after lesser things that props themselves as little gods. And, and, and my heart would want to worship it for substitute satisfaction. But it doesn't laugh. It leaves me longing. I know these things. And I'm like, Lord, am I building my kingdom? 
Am I consumed with my life all the while under the umbrella of serving God? Am I serving myself? And see, this wrecked me when I saw Herod who said, tell me where the Messiah will be born so that I too may worship him. That's not true. He's lying. He was only in it for himself. And I'm, this week I had to ask God. I was like, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for making this about me where I have forgotten that it is all about you. I had to repent this week. Like it wasn't because I'm in some closet worshiping a wooden statue. But because my heart and mind can be so consumed with other things than God. Very self-centered things. Things that take my heart away from the mind and the mission of God. From his love for me. He's like, you know what you've been created for. You've been created for greater things, but you're pursuing these little pursuits that distract you from the greater calling, which is in Christ, living with and living for him, living and serving a way that other people would see the glory of God. That he came at Christmas, that he came for sinners, that he came for the lost, that he came for those who don't think they're worthy, that he could then make them worthy in Christ because he's the light of the world and he has made a way back to be renewed and restored to God. He has come to restore us and our purpose in knowing, loving, and worshiping him. And so as a redeemed people, we now worship him for how good he is, for how loving he is, for how gracious he is. That even though we stray, we stumble, we fall, we walk away, he forgives us, and he forgives us, and he forgives us, and he dies for us so we can be forgiven. He is worthy of all praise. See, there are actually some characters in this story that scare me more than Herod. And those are his scribes. See, what we see is they knew the scriptures. They knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They knew that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And they probably got a little bit giddy when they got to tell the king how much they knew about the Bible. But when the Magi leave to go worship the newborn king, what do the scribes do? They don't follow. They go back and they put their nose in the scroll to learn more about the God who they don't even truly know. And I pray that we will never be a people that could be so familiar with God's book that we are indifferent to his presence and his purpose in our lives. That we're not just satisfied with the knowledge of God and, then, and, and not lay our lives down in pursuit of him and his glory to the nations. That we would not be a people like the scribes who can recite verses but not live them out, not lay down our lives in pursuit and worship of our God and King. See, Jesus is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. Nothing else, no one else is worthy. All praise and adoration belong to him. He is the king who is worthy of our worship. Now, I know earlier when I mentioned, uh, you know, frankincense and myrrh, some of you guys got triggered and were like, oh, my gosh, I have those oils, right? Um, and, and, but there's a lot deeper meaning um, than the healing and the aromatic properties of these elements. You see, it is in the gifts that we see the magi give uh, that, that the why Jesus is worthy why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Right, the first thing that we see is gold. Gold representing royalty. The most common gift given to kings. We now see being given as a gift to the King Jesus at his birth, declaring that the kingdom of God has come in a person. The second thing that we see is frankincense. See, this was commonly given to, to gods, to deities, and burned in temples. And so it's a clear statement of Christ's godhood as he's been giving this gift offered to as God, right? Instead of frankincense being offered in a temple, it's being laid down at the feet of a baby, the God in heaven who lowered himself so we could be lifted up together with him in new life. And lastly, he was given myrrh. Myrrh was commonly used at the burials of, of people's uh, tombs. 
And so we kind of see this foreshadowing that this baby born on Christmas Day is our loving king who was born to die for the sins of all those who place their trust in him. He's actually said in John that his body was anointed with myrrh at his tomb, that from his birth we're giving this glimpse of his sin-reversing death that was to come. The gifts at Jesus' birth show us that he is our king, he is our God, who was born on Christmas Day to die for us. And so you have to see what's going on at this Christmas story with the these magi, right? In the second chapter of the book of Matthew, the most detailed and Jewish-focused gospel in the Bible, we see Jesus the king, king of the Jews, not being worshipped by Jews, but being worshipped by rulers from other nations. Showing us Jesus' purpose was always to come for those who are far from God, for the nations. See, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. See, God's ultimate purpose was to come and to save people from all the nations. This is why Matthew's book opens with Jesus being worshipped by Gentile nations. And at the very end, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, regarded equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking a form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus isn't just worthy of Israel's worship. He's not just worthy of our worship here this morning on the North Shore, but he is worthy of the worship of the nations. This is why we send people to other nations. This is why we as a church send and support missionaries who are proclaiming the gospel to those who have not heard it around the world. Our life is bigger than just ourselves and our purposes more than our little kingdom. We have been saved and redeemed and invited into the greatest purpose and mission known to man. That God entered into his story 2,000 years ago as a baby born on Christmas Day. To live the life we could never live. Our good and faithful king became a servant of mankind. And he went to the cross and he died for us. And then he rose in power on the third day. And all who put their faith and their trust in him will be saved. Whatever tongue, whatever tribe, whatever nation they are from, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Merry Christmas. See, this is what we are being invited into this Christmas church. In the midst of all the distractions of the season and the fun things will we, that we'll be doing, which I'm enjoying, by the way, let us not forget our King Jesus, God the Son, who was born to die and save us from our sins. And let us worship him and find our fulfillment and purpose in that worship. See, when the Magi found Jesus, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that. They didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly, but rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They knew about the Messiah. They knew he was coming. They knew man was one day going to be restored to God. And when they found him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Are we rejoicing that we have found Jesus? As we celebrate this Christmas season, let us not miss Christ. Let us worship him, using every part of this season to make much of him. At Christmas, Jesus has come to reorient our worship back to God, to reorder our desires, to settle our anxieties, to overcome our fears, 
Any other thing we ascribe our worship to will let you down. Jesus is the God who knows everything you're going through, all the sin you're entangled in, knows where you've tried to be God and says, I forgive you. I've died for you so that you can be forgiven. Knowing that you weren't going to be able to order your life on your own, I've come to show you my love and the po give you the power to reorder your lives around him. And he gives us a thousand second chances at the cross. Will we set our eyes and affection on Christ and call upon our heart to worship him again? See, when we worship other things, our joy terminates on that thing and our experience is done and it never lasts. But when we worship Jesus, our joy gets to roll past that thing in praise and it finds God where we find our truest meaning. So we find our lives' greatest fulfillment and truest purpose in using every part of our life. See, check this out, church. Now, as in service to our King, and every part of our life becomes a vehicle of worship to God. This is where our life finds alignment. Our careers and our jobs, where we spend most of our lives, become the sanctuary where we worship Him by our work ethic and our attitude, by how we treat our coworkers, every project, every meeting, every coworker relationship now repurpose in an act of worship to God. Our marriages now become a vehicle of worship by how we love and treat our spouse, by how we forgive quickly and show humility. Are we praying for them? Are we serving them? Are we laying down our lives? Our families now become a place where we get to parent and love and encourage and build up all as an act of worship to God. by how we love and instruct our kids. If you're still in school, you now get to learn and study and pursue education in, 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 in a way of an act of worship. And then we get to turn our praise back to him as we learn about his world and we praise him for his creative genius and how he's ordered our world and his faithfulness throughout history. If we can enjoy the blessings God has given us as gifts and not turn them into the gods that we worship. Right? We can turn our hearts and praise to him that everything he's given us is a gift and makes him even more worthy of our praise. See, these things that he gives us are not our aim in life, but they point us to the one who is Jesus and we give him all praise and glory. See, when we live into this life of worship, every part of our life starts to make sense as, in, as we bring it into alignment with God's word and his glory and the worship of the name of Jesus. See, now I'm assuming... That every person in here, if you're a believer, you want this. We want this. I want this. I'm, I haven't arrived yet. I want this. Right? But it's going to be met with opposition. Right? It's, it's called our flesh, the little hair that lives, like just wants to rise up again. Right? It's called the enemy, Satan, the world. Those are the three, three enemies of the soul. And they're going to try to bring us back into self-worship, world worship, distracting our hearts, keeping us from li living our lives for God. And so we need to do battle and worship, church. We have to do battle and worship. Now, it could be simply as downloading worship music and singing praises to God. It could be that simple, calling out to him, evoking your heart to praise, which increases our affection for our king, spending time with him, beholding his glory. See, the more we are in awe of him, the more we worship him, but we need to behold him. Right? We sacrifice for what we worship, so we sacrifice our time. We go to bed a little bit earlier. We say no to one more episode so we can wake up a little bit earlier and spend time in his presence, worshiping him, learning about him, hearing from him, and praying to him. Or we sacrifice one night a week to join an Ohana group, being a part of the body of Christ, to be reminded of how worthy he is just one more day a week. We need that reminder from other people. And then we get to be used to help him, to help others worship him. 
Right? We sacrifice one or two Sundays a month to serve in, in Sunday school or, or set up speakers or serve coffee, whatever that looks like, as an act of worship to God to also set up a place where others can then worship Him. We sacrifice our self-consciousness as we boldly share Jesus with others, boldly share the gospel with people in our lives. Or we lay down our life, we lay down our name, we lay down our reputation for the reputation of Christ. Or what if they mock you? What if they shame you? What if they turn you away? Oh, how great would it be to experience any kind of suffering for the name of Jesus? How blessed is the man who is persecuted for Jesus' sake? See, we sacrifice our whole entire lives. Every single thing God has given us, we realize it's from him. Every gift is to be called and used for his glory. And we lay them down at the feet of Jesus this Christmas, like the Magi, bowing before our king and surrendering our greatest gifts to him. And we ask Jesus in this season, Lord, help me to worship you as king and king alone. Help me from building my own kingdom and help me to live into yours. Help me from worshiping anything that's not you. And that I would lay down my life in worship to the one true king, Jesus, the son of God, who reigns yesterday, today, and forever. And will be worshiped by every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so we pray, Lord, let me use my life this way in everyday rhythms. And every decision that I make, every location that you take me, would I see them as opportunities to worship you and bring others along to worship you. Because it is in the worshiping of King Jesus that where our hearts find healing, that our lives are reordered and restored as we worship God. Amen.